Welcome to Entheo Nation, where we feature visionaries who are pioneering the cutting edge of awakening. Psychedelic science, modern shamanism, neuroscience, new paradigm lifestyles. Get ready to harness the power of visionary states and forge reality into your wildest dreams. Hello, amazing visionaries. This is Lorna Liana, host of Entheo Nation, where science, shamanism, and visionary culture converge. In this episode, I'm being interviewed by a former client of mine, Rachel, a ceremonial space holder who hired me to help her expand her tribe and develop her coaching offers. What I love about our conversation is that here we are, two medicine women, in a frank discussion about topics that can be really controversial in the world of shamanism. Controversial because many of us wish for the world of shamanism to be pure, spiritual healing to be free, and shamans to be holy. Unfortunately, this is rarely ever the case for a variety of different reasons. One reason is that many spiritual seekers like to project other cultural paradigms onto shamanism. For example, in the East, many spiritual teachers are renunciates, living in community-supported monasteries, and whatever money they receive for services rendered comes in the form of a donation. But Amazon shamanism doesn't have this paradigm. Shamans are doctors who are paid for their services. They are not supported by regular tithing of food, clothing, and alms from their village. Shamans are not spiritual renunciates following a prescribed code of conduct and bound by spiritual vows. They are primarily herbalists, healers with expertise in medicinal plants, and they are usually married with children. Many Westerners mistakenly believe that the sacred medicines ought to be offered for free. That means they expect that the curandero, or healer, spends hours seeking and harvesting the medicine in the forest, preparing the medicine, and then healing the patient for free. What Western doctor would render their medicine and services for free? Even in countries where there is universal health care, taxpayer money funds these services. Another thing they fail to discern is the economics of free Santo Daime versus fees paid to curanderos for facilitating an all-night ceremony or a 10-day dieta at their retreat center in the jungle. The medicine produced by the Santo Daime community is often offered freely as part of a church service. Many factors make this possible. Firstly, the church members get together periodically to make large batches of medicine, which they produce in a spiritual work over several days called a feitiu. Many people participating in a feitiu are doing this in a karma yoga volunteer kind of way. If there are core people facilitating the feitiu, because face it, volunteers can be kind of unreliable, these core team members are paid a nominal fee. The church receives monthly membership dues from its congregation. This pays for all the costs associated with having regular daime works, from toilet paper to candles, electricity, water, and guitar strings. Churches make money selling batches of daime overseas for much higher prices than what a leader typically costs locally. 
The low-paid fetio workers are not typically included in profit share. Obviously, you can see how this is a very controversial practice. Finally, the reason why you, as a visitor, get to participate in a church work for free or for a nominal visitor's contribution is because ultimately the hope is that you will join the flock and become a convert. So this is why daime is free, and it's important not to confuse this community-centric system where costs are borne by the community with the shaman-centric system where costs are borne by the shaman. Some misguided Westerners will even claim that Indians will give you ayahuasca for free. Yes, that is indeed the case. But I will also say that if you, a Westerner who can afford an international plane ticket to go to Peru, Brazil, Colombia, or Ecuador, and then travel hours, if not days, to arrive in an indigenous village, if you expect the villagers to offer you their hospitality without some form of equitable exchange, then I'm sorry to say you are being a parasite. Let me explain to you how this works, and I share this with you because I've been going to the restricted indigenous territories in Brazil for years as a guest of the tribes. There are areas that are strictly off limits to outsiders, where you would have to apply to Funai, which is the Ministry of Indigenous Affairs, for permission to enter these areas, which will most likely deny your request. You can only go there as a guest of the Indians, and if the chief of the community is expecting you, because there are no hotels, no public transportation, nowhere where you can buy food for yourself. If you happen to turn up there without an invitation, you will be sent back downriver. So, as a guest of the tribe, what you need to do is to make yourself welcome and certainly not be a parasite. So, in order to do this, you have to one hire a boat and provision yourself with enough food and gasoline for you and your boat crew, which is usually two people, for your journey there and back. Two, you need to bring supplies for the family you are staying with, so food for them during the entire time you are lodged with them. Three, plus gifts for the village, most definitely the chief and his family, and this will be in the form of items that they need for day-to-day survival, such as propellers for canoe motors, dish soap, fishing hooks, pots and pans, batteries, canned food and dry goods, sponges, clothes and medicine, and beads for the women. Four, you may also be expected to make a monetary contribution to the village, and if you do all of that, sure, you will most likely be invited to drink ayahuasca with the village and not be charged a fee at the door of the maloka. Here's the deal: you have to understand, indigenous people are the poorest of the poor. They mostly live off the land, but they still need money to buy manufactured goods, and they don't have much opportunity to make money. Even though they may grow food and hunt, they still have to struggle to feed themselves and their kids. And hunting is hard work. That's only in the places where the game has not been completely depleted. If it has, then they must buy beef or chicken. So, if you think you can drop in as a rich Westerner and be housed, fed, and given ayahuasca for free, I'm going to say to you this: pull your head out of your ass, dude, and don't be an entitled Western parasite. So I feel it's important to address the question of money, ayahuasca, and spirituality because I can tell from some of the accusatory emails I receive and the heated discussions perpetually going on in the ayahuasca Facebook groups about shamanism and money that there is this huge misconception around shamanism needing to be free. I would love to hear your thoughts about this. You can leave your comments in the show notes, which can be found at entheonation.com/thirty-one. 
Don't forget, at the very end of this episode is the Medicine Music for the Soul segment, where you can discover medicine-inspired music from around the world. And if you're a professional musician, I invite you to submit your music to be featured in the Entheonation podcast. Simply send me an email with the subject line, Medicine Music for the Soul, and include a band camp link to your album, plus links where I can download high-quality recordings. Now on to the show. Are you ready to join the evolution? Sign up for our newsletter and receive our free guide to navigating visionary states, along with eight email lessons on how you can harness the power of your sacred visions. As a VIP member of Entheo Nation, you'll receive invitations to join life-transforming retreats and mind-expanding programs. Just go to entheonation.com slash iTunes to join the tribe and receive your free gifts today. Hello, Global Tribe of Visionaries. My name is Lorna Liana, and I'm the host of the Entheo Nation podcast, and I have with me a sister in the Global Medicine Tribe and a client of mine, Rachel Sessions, who will interview me on how shamanic practices can connect us to prosperity, power, and purpose. Rachel is a plant medicine advocate and shamanic guide. Thank you, Lorna. Happy to be here. Happy to have you join us today. Great. So Lorna, can you tell us more about your shamanic journey and how it led you to your career and to your life's work? So I would say that the turning point for me uh, came in 2004. I had decided to take a sabbatical from work. I'd spent about 10 years in the nonprofit sector and I was feeling really burnt out. And I also had recently connected with the ayahuasca tradition of the Amazon. And after spending some time working with circles in the United States, I felt that I needed to experience a living culture. So I flew myself to the Brazilian Amazon armed with a list of contacts. Um, only one person responded to me and that was the son of the uh, Kashinawa chief of the uh, Hunaquin nation of Upper Jordan. So the Hunaquin people are also called the Kashinawas. And uh, he basically responded to me saying that he couldn't understand what I was saying because I wrote to everybody in Spanish, uh, thinking that they could speak Spanish since um, Brazil, that part of Brazil is right next to the Bolivian and uh, Peruvian borders. Uh, and of course, when I got there, I realized that there is an impenetrable mountain range and forest uh, in between the two. So it's, it's actually not like like so easy to get across. So I had that. And then I had my friend, uh, Robert Tyndall's second chapter of his then unpublished book, The Jaguar That Roams the Mind. And so amazing things happened through the power of prayer. Um, I really set the intention to connect with the uh, indigenous wisdom holders of um, this uh, plant medicine tradition. And I, you know, first the the doorway that opened to me was um, the opportunity to connect with the Santo Daime churches in Brazil. And then I was also invited to participate in a a festival uh, that the Hunaquin people of Jordan were hosting. And so that involved a small uh, propeller plane ride to the nearest town with a concrete airstrip and then five day boat journey down a river. And so during that time, um, as I was working a lot with the medicines, as I was immersed in the jungle, my spiritual 
channels became more and more open. I became more sensitive and I started to perceive this message all around me that seemed to be coming from the forest. And it was one of those things where it was clear what the message was. And that message was, Lorna, your mission, if you are to choose to accept, is to learn how to leverage emerging technologies to preserve indigenous wisdom so that indigenous wisdom can continue to benefit the modern world and these technologies can benefit uh, the indigenous people. And at that point, I had absolutely no idea how to fulfill that mission. All I knew was that, okay, you know, here was something really important and bigger than me that I felt this uh, message and this calling to step up to and, and embark on. And so, you know, in making that first step, that actually led me to my career in um, high tech in as a internet marketer for a, uh, my last corporate job was working for a high tech company in uh, the Bay Area. And then I became a new media strategist and basically mastered different um, aspects of social media and uh, search engine uh, marketing. So basically discovering how to use new media to tell stories and to share uh, information and to be able to have that information, those stories be discovered so that people can you know, discover the work that you're doing, whether it's a company or a nonprofit organization. Um, over the years, I've had incredible clients from the sustainability sector, uh, clients who are, you know, social venture companies, and then, of course, uh, transformational coaches and healers, uh, just like yourself, Rachel, and some of the other amazing uh, clients that I work with, who all seem to have some connection to uh, shamanic traditions. Wonderful. Wow. It's amazing how you were able to bridge the modern with the indigenous and how important that is in our time right now. What kind of shamanic training have you received? So it's interesting, this whole concept around uh, that I've uh, uh, discovered or come across, which you may have also come across as well in, as in your work as a shamanic practitioner, is this idea about lineage. And so one of the things that I want to uh, remind everybody of in this audience is that shamanism is probably the oldest religion in the world and probably the oldest profession in the world. And so, you know, our relationship to... uh the natural world and to, you know, nature and animals as, you know, teacher spirits and allies and our ability to access trans states and dreaming really go back, goes back tens of thousands of years. And you can see that evidence in some of the cave paintings that we've discovered. In terms of the actual formal training I've had, I um, really began uh, my uh, studies in shamanic practices with Tibetan uh, Bun shamanic lineage. So Bun is the indigenous religion of Tibet. That was uh, the religion or this uh, that existed before the Buddhists came over from India in the eighth or ninth century. So the first school of Tibetan Buddhism that was established is the Nyingma lineage, and that happens to be the school of uh, Tibetan Buddhism that is also the most shamanic because Buddhism tends to you know absorb a lot of the you know culture spiritual practices of the regions that it emerges in. So I spent three years in living in a Nyingma meditation center. And then shortly afterwards, I connected with my Bun shamanic teacher. And it was then that I really dove deep into uh, shamanic practices of Tibetan dream yoga. Also, my teacher uh, teaches how to heal with the five elements. So in the uh, Bun tradition, there are five elements. There's fire, water, earth, air, and space. 
So mm-hmm. space is considered to be an element as well. Spaciousness of your primordial mind uh, is one of those aspects. And then there's a lot of work with protector spirits as well. And then they also um, have their own form of soul retrieval. And then later on, I was connected with the Amazonian um, ayahuasca traditions, and I've spent time with indigenous tribes in Ecuador, in uh, Peru, and then also in Brazil. And so Brazil is kind of like my shamanic home, so to speak. And so I've been going back to Brazil for many years uh, since 2004 and have spent a lot of time as a guest of the tribes and and working with the, the plant medicine teachers and learning directly from the indigenous people. Wonderful. And being able to integrate all of those different traditions must be wonderful and so informative for your work currently. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, indigenous people, they don't have certification programs, you know, so there are like a lot of, you know, shamanic teachers that have these certification programs and you learn based on their teachings. And then you discover that their teachings are actually hybrids of what they learned about from the um, indigenous people. And, you know, when you spend time with the tribes, as you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, um, with your relationship with the, uh, the, the Colombian elders, a lot of that learning unfolds over time. It unfolds over spending time in their villages, eating, you know, meals with the families. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not like a, you know, structured curriculum, like, okay, we're going to wake up at nine and we're going to study these things. In a classroom setting. It's just, it happens through experience. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Great. And so can you tell us more about how these shamanic practices can connect us with prosperity, with power and our purpose? Yeah. So um, one of the things that I find so deeply healing and powerful with the you know shamanic traditions is this um our ability to connect with the earth which is an infinitely abundant planet and uh, one of the things that I see often in our spiritual community is this struggle between wanting to live a spiritually oriented life that's in integrity and then the question of being able to receive, you know, payment for your services or wanting to have, you know, level of abundance. You know, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be like millionaire or a billionaire level, but a level of abundance that allows you to really take care of yourself, take care of your family, you know, save for the future and to be able to to thrive so that you can be the best person that you want to be. And so one of the things that I like to recommend to people, if they're feeling this block between the prosperity that they are hoping for or seeking and, you know, having, uh, and there being a block with a lot of negative stories around, you know, whether it's spiritual to want to have uh, abundance, whatever that means for you is to connect with the abundance of the living planet and to know beyond a doubt that mother nature, Nature, you know, you as a child of Mother Nature, she wants the best for you. She wants to give you what it is that you need to survive and to thrive. And that the biggest block holding you back from receiving that abundance from uh, this living planet and from Mother Nature is your ability to receive. So if you can open up to the abundance of, you know, like spring, for example, you know, the abundance of the summer harvest, the abundance of, you know, the fact that we have these big oceans that are full of water, you know, just connect with the elements that you um, are able to connect with around you and know that there is an abundance of these things um, in nature. Uh, and once you can 
open up to receiving that abundance from life, then it'll open up the channels for you to receive abundance, financial abundance, material abundance, you know, for yourself and your family. When I like to talk to people about power, I know there can be a lot of negative connotations around shamanism and power. And so what I want to emphasize is that the power that I'm talking about is not power over other people to manipulate other people so that they do your bidding kind of like a brujo would do. That power um, is your own personal power, your own sense of empowerment, to know that you are perfect exactly the way that you are. You are beautiful exactly the way that you are. And, you know, Mother Earth loves you exactly the way that you are. And, you know, certainly if you felt called to improve yourself or to grow in certain ways, you know, that is your choice, but it doesn't mean that you are deficient in some way. And so when you can ground yourself in your own innate power um, of being human and of being a, you know, precious spiritual being that incarnated on this planet, you know, one who is connected to this living planet and in the web of life, uh, knowing that you have a unique purpose and that your life has, you know, meaning, your life is meaningful and you have so much that you can accomplish with your life. And just your consciousness is unique and beautiful and powerful and how you perceive and experience the world that has value. And that is important. Then when you ground in your own power, then you can accomplish anything for yourself that you set your mind to do. And then of course, purpose. Um, once I, I believe that when you have connected with your own personal spiritual power, and when you are able to open up to the abundance that is available to you in the world, in, in nature, then all of a sudden it becomes very difficult to ignore that call to a greater purpose, the call to serve, to call to align with a goal or a mission that is bigger than yourself and to connect with other people that are also aligned so that your precious human life, whatever you are able to accomplish, that you can leave something good behind that is a positive legacy for other people to enjoy, whether it's the people in your family and the community around you, or even on a bigger scale, whatever that means for you. And so that's why I believe that shamanic practices can connect us with prosperity, with power and with purpose. Are you a spiritual seeker intrigued by the insight, healing, and transformation that visionary medicines offer? Do you feel called to work with sacred plant medicines but don't know how to begin, let alone where to find a qualified shaman? Or perhaps you might have had a life-changing experience at an ayahuasca retreat center in Peru and are confused about how to integrate all your cosmic downloads with your day-to-day life back home. And what would really help with that journey is the support of a community of people who work with visionary medicines on a regular basis. If this sounds like you, check out Spiritual Evolution with Sacred Plant Medicines, an online program designed to help you receive the highest transformation. Just go to entheonation.com spiritual to view the course curriculum and receive a special 10% discount just for being a podcast listener. Simply apply the coupon code ENTHEO10, that's E-N-T-H-E-O-10, to redeem your 10% discount today.
Those are really important distinctions, Lorna, and I appreciate you you expressing that to this group, you know, especially surrounding the appropriate exchanges for our time and our energy and our gifts and being able to cultivate abundance for everyone. And I feel like that does really tie in to the power dynamic and that you're talking about is not about a hierarchy, right? It's about all of us have that innate power within us and it's about awakening that in each person so that not, no one is above the other one, but we're all just naturally expressing our own purpose and gifts. But it's curious, why do you believe that that so many shamanic practitioners and healing practitioners have such a negative reaction around shamanism with power and money? Well, I'd love to also invite you to share your experience, too, since you've worked extensively within the shamanic world and with um, some of the indigenous uh, communities and with the Colombian elders. What do you see? Because I think what you see, too, and, and um, is also a dynamic that kind of comes from this older culture and, and also extends out to contemporary culture of uh, shamanism. Mm-hmm. What I've observed from tradition is that, you know, when shamanism originated, as you began, just as the origins of humanity began, the shaman was an integral part of the community. And the exchange for the shaman's healing work was that that individual would be cared for, their family would be cared for, they would have the food, the shelter, all of the, the necessities that they that they needed to survive and to be well. But in this day and age, we don't have that style of of tribal communities and exchange that is beyond money. Money has turned into our form of exchange. And so I feel like naturally with the progression of humanity and we progressed into a monetary exchange for our work and our time, naturally shamanism also has to evolve into that. And so money has become a necessity. And one of the easiest ways that we can recognize that we've been given something and to offer something in in return for what we've been given. So I do find that this community, this world of shamanism is not separate in any way from the modern struggles of power dynamics and hierarchies. And, and so, so I do, I see that as, you know, turning into abuse of power, even within the shamanic world and people from the outside looking in, seeing that dynamic as, as a reflection of our kind of everyday society and, and the weaknesses there, which is what I find so so empowering and beautiful about this opportunity as well as we step into more of a modern shaman world is that we can um, as modern shamans as healers seek to balance out those everyday uh, abuses of power and those everyday hierarchy battles and battles with money and abundance through our balancing these types of exchanges in a, in a healing capacity. Yeah, I also want to highlight uh, the fact that some of these uh, traditional indigenous cultures also had a lot of history with uh, sorcery or brujeria. And so the same, you know, plant doctor might be, you know, available to be hired to, you know, heal a person or make another person sick. And they received payment for those things. And so I think it's really important for people to realize, too, that uh, if this tradition is a doctoring uh, for a lot of the uh, indigenous cultures, the the tradition of, um, you know, plant medicine healing is a doctoring tradition, Uh, Mm -hmm. not necessarily a, you know, like spiritual, you know, monastic tradition with a lot of 
you know, codes of conduct that the, uh, the doctor, the, the curandero might, might follow. So it's, it's good to be aware of those things and to not like put your, you know, like spiritual well-being, like hand over your spiritual well-being to this person that's really, you know, actually trying to physically heal you or heal your body, mind and spirit, but approaching it from more of a doctor perspective. And so I think what's really um, exciting and needed in this world right now is this integration too of people who are interested in these plant medicine traditions, but who come from other backgrounds, like uh, they might, you know, be have um, years, uh, you know, person, a contemporary shaman who is a non-Indigenous might have had years of yoga training or, you know, be trained as a psychotherapist and now, you know, serving plant medicine circles, you know, as an integrated form of healing. I think all those different modalities, these new modalities are needed. So I do want to, you know, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are too, Rachel, on this idea that, you know, spirituality and shamanism should be free. And so, you know, I, I've had questions like that come up. And when I think about it too, I think, well, back in the day, shamans were paid in some way, you know, whether it was cash or a chicken. And so, you know, what are your thoughts about can, uh, the economic exchange that occurs, whether you're offering a shamanic service or, you know, offering information, you know, things, things that actually cost time, energy, and money for the person that is offering. Exactly. I definitely believe that there needs to be some kind of energy exchange. I also believe in just that's that's part of the laws of the universe, that in order that there there's a nonstop cycle of giving and receiving. And in order to be on the receiving end, we also have to be on the giving end. So whether it be through money or through another form, there has to be some kind of an exchange. For us, the simplest form right now is money. I do also recognize that there's a lot of cost and time that goes into it from the practitioner level. And and all of the hours of training and the travels to these different locations where we receive the training, all of the supplies and the time that goes into it is cost money, you know? And so I do think that that's an important thing. I think the, for me, the most important balancing point is to not make that the priority, mm-hmm. but just a, a necessity and something that naturally flows. I always, in my personal work, work with everyone on an individual basis of, you know, if you don't have this particular number that we're requesting, then how can we work with you? What is another way that you can offer an exchange, whether it be with your time and service to the community or to the individual in whatever way? But if you have the money, then then that's you know the easiest and the most expedient way of exchange. But I really do stand by that need because otherwise, you know, these these individuals who are offering all of these these services don't have what they need to be able to be strong and to take care of their family and to be well. And then the balance is just skewed and off, and it's an it's impossible to give to the full potential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a really interesting conversation that came about at the World Ayahuasca Conference around mm. the commercialization of ayahuasca. And it was really interesting to see the clash between the churches and the church leaders and then the indigenous shamans because the church leaders were talking about how the shamans were commercializing ayahuasca and profiting from it. And the shamans were like, but wait, this is our medicine that we've used for thousands of years. 
It takes a lot of time and energy to prepare the medicine, to transport it and all. And then there's our time of being able to offer it, you know, so why shouldn't we get be compensated for that? And hey, look at you churches, your, you know, members all pay monthly dues or whatever. And then you guys are shipping, you know, like hundreds of liters of ayahuasca overseas. And then other people are, you know, and are buying it from you. So what about that commercialization? So it, it's, it's really interesting to, you know, I think it's an important phenomenon to be aware of, you know, around plant medicines, whether it's ayahuasca or ibaga or, you know, huachuma or, or, you know, visionary mushrooms. But I think it's also to have a good, important to have a certain amount of discernment. Okay. Where is the discomfort coming from? Is it coming from a, you know, story of lack within your own history? Like, is it like a, a story of self-limitation that comes from your own belief system from your family versus looking at like the fair economic exchange? Like, oh my gosh, this ceremony is like, you know, 10 hours long and it's at this retreat center and they had to buy all this toilet paper and the food and all that, you know, and then like these people were up all night long, you know, so what is the fair economic exchange? And then also profiteering. I think you can look at a certain scenario and, you know, start to see if there is some type of profiteering motivation in it because maybe the discrepancy of what you're receiving and then what they're charging is is really big. And so then it's like, oh, goodness gracious, like the going rate for a, you know, ceremony is typically, you know, like, I don't know, between one and 300, depending on who it is, and uh, dollars, and then the person's charging, you know, a thousand dollars for like the same time frame. So then it's like, okay, why is that? And then are you in alignment with it? So just have some discernment over, you know, what is fair exchange before just saying, oh, because there's a dollar uh, uh, or a uh, price associated with the service, then it's unethical. Hey there, visionary. We really need your help. Entheonation is on a mission to raise public awareness of the therapeutic potential of psychedelics and visionary plant medicines. We do this by creating consciousness-raising content, which we give to the public for free. And this costs money. That's why I'm asking you to play an active part in the psychedelic renaissance by supporting Entheonation on Patreon. Your patronage allows us to create more podcasts, interview more experts, research and write in-depth articles, produce videos, and offer unique educational products for visionaries just like you. All you need to do is go to patreon.com slash entheonation. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash entheonation and browse our mind-expanding rewards and choose your monthly pledge. Take a stand for cognitive liberty and spiritual freedom by becoming an entheonation patron today. But if you think about it, it's like we got a massage, an hour-long massage, and what's that, $60 to to $100 an hour? So if you think someone is in service, you know, up all night focused and praying and doing everything they do for 10 hours, if you're on that same kind of scale, then potentially you could be charging a thousand dollars, but they're not, you know, Mm -hmm. it is all a balance. And I think that it's important to see the other ways and other areas of our lives that we do have this monetary exchange and it's not being questioned. You know, you go to the grocery store, Mm -hmm. you pay 
food, you pay for the food. You don't expect to walk out. You go to the pharmacy and you pick up your medications and you pay for those and then you walk out. And so it's the same thing just because they're cultivating indigenous plants and indigenous healing modalities doesn't somehow make that exclusive from from this natural exchange that, that we have built into every other relationship. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Great. So what would you say, Lorna, is the number one thing that effectively transforms someone who is an intuitive, someone who is connected to their innate shamanic gifts into a visionary leader who is capable of inspiring a movement? So I would say that the number one thing that will allow you to really increase your impact uh, in the world through the profound work that you're being called to do is to connect with your tribe because mm-hmm. it's so hard to, you know, do a good work by all by yourself. And especially when you look at the good work that's needed in this world, you're mm-hmm. up against some really powerful interests. You know, if we look at what's happening at Standing Rock right now, Okay, Mm -hmm. like these are like some deeply entrenched, you know, uh, oil interests who have power and money and like the armed guards and the dogs and all that. And so for that reason, like if you wanted to be, you know, stand for something that's good, like clean water, like the protection of your, you know, sacred sites, you know, the protection of future generations, there's going to be some opposition. And so you got to connect with the people that are going to be your allies. You're going to have to connect with the people that are going to be your mentors, that are going to teach you how to do things in a way that's most effective and most powerful so that you're not wasting time. Uh, you're mm-hmm. going to need to connect with people that, you know, can't be at the front lines with you, but want to also, you know, support you in some way. So your fans, your allies, your, your mentors. And so when you're able to create your tribe around your mission, then at that point, then your personal mission then starts to become a part of a movement. You know, maybe you have a very unique way of accomplishing your mission, but then that mission actually is a piece of the puzzle of a bigger movement. And then when you're able to do that, then first of all, like magic happens and everything's just so much more fun because then you meet people that are going to be like um, instrumental and and collaborators and you'll have, uh, you know, epic synchronicitous encounters. Um, Life will start to unfold like a great mystery, you know, with full of magic and synchronicity. And then when you start to see these signs that you are aligned with your purpose and that people are stepping forward to help you and that the way that they're helping you and the way that you help them are so powerfully correlated, then that's when you start to gain that momentum as a movement. And so there are different ways to connect with your tribe. And one of the ways that I like to teach my clients is, you know, being able to connect with your tribe using online tools. And the central tool or engine that drives the momentum of your tribe is your email platform. Because, you know, you might have like a big network of people and it might be, it might feel like people support you. But when when you really know that you have the ability to motivate the masses to take collective action, you can see that very easily if you send out an email and say, hey, can you sign this petition? Or, or do you want to, you know, show up for this retreat? Or, you know, I'm doing a lead 
leading a, you know, tour down to Peru, whatever it is. And then you start to see all the yeses come back. You know, that's so much more efficient to be able to coordinate actions than, you know, individually uh, through social media because you've got like, you know, 5,000 Facebook fans or because I, I think one of the things is it, it's great to have your wider social media network, but the truth is not everybody sees your update and most people don't see your update unless they're in front of a device. So using social media to motivate people um, is ne- is not nearly as effective as using email to motivate people. So that's what I love to inspire people to do and to think about is like, if you see yourself as a visionary leader, uh, being part of a movement um, with a beautiful and profound mission to fulfill, then the most important thing you can do is to start attracting your tribe and start to organize them uh, through your email newsletter. What I really love about your work too, Lorna, is is like you were beginning with this bridge between the modern technological, the historically indigenous and native ways. And I feel like especially in shamanism and in healing, we feel like we have to somehow disconnect from technology that somehow it's been made bad, you know, but I, I think that it's really the time to start using it as the tool that it is because we have people all over the world that we can connect to that are ready to be motivated into this movement into this call, these calls to action. And what better way than technology, than email, than to connect to the tribe through these, these amazing resources that we have. So I appreciate you bringing that to, to the forefront and really using that for the tool that it is. Yeah, I want to share with you a funny story uh, as we close this session. So I have these indigenous friends from Brazil, from the Hunaquin tribe, and uh, well, actually from different tribes, from like Yoanawa, Hunaquin, and uh, Kuntanawa. And uh, in around uh, 2011, I literally like chased them around, like followed them. It was like, hey, can I record your songs and, you know, in video and put them on YouTube? And so finally, they just all got together. And at the last day of this festival that we were in. They all like formally created the opportunity for anybody to record the, their songs and they shared their songs. So basically I took um, one song, it's a number of people like by a river, and then it's in a great song too. It's a kind of like a more contemporary version of a traditional song that is typically chanted, but now is being sung with, with a uh, guitar and, and drums. And, mm-hmm. and then I, I took that recording and I put it on YouTube and now it has 150,000 views and it's got over 150,000 views is because most people are actually listening and watching the video to learn the song. So that song is now being transmitted all over the world, you know, to people that have never met these indigenous friends of mine, because they absolutely love the song. It speaks to them in some way. There's something about this song in particular, but some of the other videos, like they're doing well, but they're, you know, they're not like 150,000, right? So it's touching people in such a way where they're feeling called to learn that song for themselves. And so Mm -hmm. this is the beauty of using digital media and using technology to really just be able to share these beautiful, profound messages and the stories of of people that have so much to teach us, really. And, And I see that in the work that you're doing, Rachel. So thank you so much for your work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Lorna. Thanks so much for listening. And now I bring you a song that delights my heart and soul in its simplicity and purity. That is the song, Corazón es lo único que tengo by I Am, a medicine-inspired collaboration between Andrea Marquez and Christian Amin Varconi from the album Pai Madre Naturaleza. 
This song has been making its way around medicine song circles around the world, and if you would like to learn the words, I wrote them down for you. Just go to entheonation.com slash 30 to find the lyrics to this song and so much more in the episode show notes. Do you have medicine music for the soul that you would like to share? If you're a professional musician or creator of medicine-inspired music or down-tempo electronica that you can trip to, feel free to share your music with me and you may be featured in the Entheonation podcast. Please send a link to your Bandcamp song plus a direct download link of the high-quality recording and we'll let you know if we decide to feature it in a future episode. Thanks a lot and have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you.